Welcome to Die Panda Die. I'm Liz. I'm Maddie. And this is a podcast where we follow two geeks with otherwise worthless biology degrees as they use evolution, development, and animal behavior to explore the weirdest aspects of the natural world and our own. So what were you about to tell me before we did the intro? Okay, so it goes like this. Da 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 ring a bell. You know that music. That's beautiful singing, Liz, but what's it from? It's from the best movie ever. Jurassic Park. Casablanca? Jurassic Park. Okay. The last time I saw Jurassic Park was in third grade. It's so good. What do you like most about it, Liz? Hmm. I guess what I like most is dinosaurs. That's a pretty fair assessment. So you'll have to remind me again. What happens in Jurassic Park? I know there's a bunch dinosaurs. Of, well, yes, I know there's a bunch of dinosaurs and there's dinosaurs an island and there's Jeff Goldblum. Dinosaurs. I have a complete sense of the plot now. Thank you, Liz. <laughs> that is more or less the plot. Okay, cool. Let's use some dinosaurs. That's great. I'm really, I'm really glad I, 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 I didn't. Mm. Feel bad I know I did not see this movie more recently. So if you were a character in the Jurassic Park franchise, what character would you be? Um, what are my options? There's Jeff Goldblum. There's some... Oh, I'm Jeff Goldblum. Oh, you're Jeff Goldblum. Okay, so No, I, can... I want to be cynical and wear glasses and talk about nature finds a way. And sprawl on things. And sprawl. I'm so good at sprawling. I think I'd like to be Chris Pratt because he gets to train the Velociraptors and like hold his hands toward velociraptors and also wear some like really good eyeliner and also I think hold infinity stones without dying. True, Chris Pratt is pretty cool. But you know, there's a little bit of a misnomer in the name of this franchise and it might surprise you to know that it's not 100% scientifically accurate. That's shocking, Liz, really. Tell mm-hmm. me more. Well, what? aside from the bit about why would you replace dinosaur DNA that was damaged with stretches of frog DNA? Because frogs aren't closely related to dinosaurs, and it would make much more sense to use chicken DNA. And also the bit about how there's no way you could extract a whole genome from a mosquito preserved in amber, because DNA doesn't work like that. It's a very fragile chemical that breaks down very easily. The part about bringing dinosaurs back to life, though, is spot on. No, it's not. <laughs> but... There's also even a misnomer in the name of the park, because it implies that dinosaurs only lived during the Jurassic period, and this isn't true. That's also a misnomer in that it's called a park when it's really a torture saw museum. It's nice. It's a nice park. It's a nice place to go to. I want to go to Jurassic Park. Didn't all the dinosaurs break out and kill everyone? That is the plot of the movie, right? All the dinosaurs broke out and killed everyone. Some people escape. Okay. That sounds like a great place. Take it your kids. It might still be worth it. Oh, the kids always survive. That's, oh, okay. that's the rule of the Jurassic Park franchise. The kids always survive. Okay, cool. I want to be one of the kids. Mm-hmm. Screw Chris Pratt. So do you, alive. do you know why it's called Jurassic Park? I mean, that's a weird word, right? Jurassic. Um, it's a mashup between just and fantastic. It's the J-fantastic. No, no, it's not. That's so wrong. Uh, it's pretty good. That's it good. actually comes from the Jura Mountains in the Alps. Oh, interesting. And now why is a dinosaur theme park named after a bunch of European mountains? Well, it was in these mountains that 
the stone was found that contains the fossils that were used to determine the time boundaries of the Jurassic period. That's very interesting. I thought it was because Jeff Goldblum came from the Jura Mountains. One day he walked out fully formed as a human and descended upon everyone and was Jeff Goldblum and he came out just, you know, like a Venus from the ocean, from the shell. Well, it could also be because of that. So why do we, as biologists, split up huge chunks of time into these geological eras? What do we gain from that? Why do we need this concept of stuff like the Jurassic and the Triassic and the Cambrian? What does that give us as scientists? And why is it so closely linked to rocks? Why do we define a whole group of animals as these are the Jurassic animals? Why are they defined by rocks? Why is this an area where geology and biology have to work very closely together? Because fossils? Yes, because fossils. So some brief background on the history of geologic eras. The Earth has been around for about 4.6 billion years. Give or take. Mm -hmm. The Earth formed 10 billion years after the universe formed. It took a while to get going. This is going to be one of those big picture episodes where in like half an hour we cover everything, the history of all time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we might be skimming over a few billion years worth of stuff. But we need geologic eras as scientists because when we talk about these things, we're talking on timescales of millions and billions of years, and it's tough for humans to perceive these timescales. And in fact, the only reason why we have a sense that they exist is because of the fossil record and because Mm -hmm. of geologic layers, because of layers of rock. We can go back and date the rock and see how old the Earth is and how or dirt piles up on the earth and it forms rocks, and that's how we know how old the earth is. Yeah, and so knowing precise dates when it comes to fossils is not very helpful. There's no difference between this fossil is 2,230,234,320 years old, and this fossil is 2,230,235,120 years old. Did you just pull those dates out of a hat? So... We don't have the ability to date ancient fossils as precisely as I might date the debut of a television series. And you can't even use carbon dating, because carbon isotopes have long since degraded. Yeah. The stuff we normally use to date biological records is no longer applicable on that scale. It's Mm -hmm. just too old. Yeah, when we get back into these really old rock layers, it becomes very difficult to tell within a degree of millions of years how old they are. And in fact, one of the best ways to date the age of a rock is to use evolutionary phylogenies to try to figure out when the fossils in that rock evolved and to use biology to date these rocks. And so applying the same timescale to Earth's history that we apply to modern times doesn't make sense. As the Scottish mathematician John Playfair said back in the 1700s, The mind seems to grow giddy by looking so far into the abyss of time. And that's what we're doing here. We're looking into the abyss of time. And back during the 18th century, when we really started understanding how old the Earth was, it became more and more of a challenge for scientists to understand how do we think about such vast lengths of time. So there was another Scot, James Hutton. And I should point out here that the development of geology as a science is heavily tied to the British Isles 
So a lot of the different ages are named after different British rocks and different British rock features. So for instance, the Devonian era is named after the area of brain called Devon. Mm-hmm. And the Permian is named after the city of Perm, which is a dumb name for a city. I'm sorry, Britain. So James Hutton was your average Scottish gentleman. He had a farm, a bastard son, and he really liked looking at riverbeds, which is what all Brits did back before the BBC was invented. But after 25 years of looking at rocks, not just river rocks, but cliff rocks and mine rocks and whatever those rocks are called, I'm not a geologist, James Hutton came to realize a couple of things about rocks. He realized that the land and the sea were always interacting. They were touching each other. They were exchanging materials. It was all very, very sexy. Oh, gracious. And eventually that made more rocks. James Little Hutton- baby rocks. Little baby rocks, yeah. James Hutton realized that the land on which he lived hadn't always been in the same place. That the land of the British Isles and the land of the rest of the world had been created by natural forces that worked just the same as the natural forces he was observing out on the Scottish cliffs. Very, 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 very slowly, new land was being created from minerals in the ocean. And very, very slowly, this land was building on top of each other and growing upwards. And this was the process by which the continents were created. And so that brief geology lesson, it might might seem off topic, but geology is really intimately linked to the study of evolution. After all, James Hutton would often find animals buried in these rocks. And the same types of animal-shaped things were found in the same kinds of rocks at the same relative depth all around the British Isles. So early paleontologists found that they could assemble evolutionary histories of these creatures by making the assumption that these creatures lived at roughly the same time that these rock layers formed. Fossils are assigned to time periods based off the geologic time scale because the geologic time scale is the ruler against which their evolution can be most easily measured. Just as the formation of rocks can take millions of years, so can the evolution of one species into another. Furthermore, biological processes contribute intimately to the development of many geological structures over the course of geologic time. One tiny coral secreting calcium carbonate isn't going to change the world, but enough coral growing over enough time can build entire islands. Or for instance, in England, there's entire layers that are made of chalk, the chalk layers, and those are the preserved and pressed bodies of old sea creatures. And so these geologic eras are really, really complicated, and we could talk for hours about each one. But again, short podcast, so don't pretend that this is going to be in a very in-depth explanation of geology at all. We're going to give you one small fact you can associate with these different landmarks on the geologic time scale. The people who develop all this stuff were super rock enthusiasts, but we're not so much rock enthusiasts. We're not so much rock enthusiasts. Believe me, I appreciate a good rock as much as the next person, but boy, rocks don't get me up in the morning, you know? No, they don't get your rocks off. Oh, Jesus Christ, Liz. (laughs) Elizabeth. (laughs) Elizabeth. No, I went to the Smithsonian Museum once, and they have that section where they have all the, like, gemstones and stuff. And I just walked through it, and I noticed a bunch of college students who were standing in front of the displays and walking very slowly and taking notes on every rock and talking to themselves. And I asked, gee, what's going on? And they said, oh, we're geology majors. (laughs) We're geology majors at William and Mary, and we all drove up here today to look at these rocks. And I'm 
like, good for you. You have a passion. It's important to have your thing. I'm glad your passion exists. I don't share it. Mm -hmm. We all have our own special areas of study. Some people like bugs. Some people like rocks. Some people like haunted paintings. And some people like rock and roll. Yes. So these geologic sections of time come in a couple of different sizes. Eons are the big ones. There's four of them. How long are they? Eons, think on the billions of years times. Oh, it's four billion years, four eons. Is that right? Yeah, well, there's four eons, but they're not divided up evenly into billion year chunks. Okay, so eons are just big, big. Yeah, they're big bigs. Okay. Eons are divided into eras, and these things, they get much more closely defined the more closer to the modern day we get because we have more of that rock surviving. Okay, but they're not metric. No, they're not metric. There's no, um, like, set length of time that defines an eon. They're just sort of categorical. Yeah, it's categorical. We can't talk about the first eons in the same way we can talk about the current eon because all the rock from that eon has been mostly destroyed and so we just don't have the data to talk about that okay so eons are divided into eras which are further divided into periods and we're not going to get more in depth than the period level here so the first eon is the hadean eon from Hades. I was just wondering that. Oh, that's so cool and fun. It ran from about 4.6 to 4 billion years ago. There was no life, the moon was just forming, and everything was on fire. Everything was on fire. This is back when the oceans and the primitive atmosphere were just starting to arise. And the interesting thing about the Hadean era is that most scientists agree that the development of the oceans and the atmosphere didn't really take all that long. And by all that long, I mean only took like 200 million years. Oh yeah, the blink of the eye. But when you look at that on the time scale of the history of the Earth, that's about 5%, less than 5% of the Earth's history that passed before the oceans arose. And we know this because there were studies done on the isotopal oxygen ratios of really, really old zircon crystals, and that indicated that there was liquid water being produced on the Earth's surface about 4.4 billion years ago. So after 200 million years of fire and brimstone, you had the seed for our planet. The moon was more or less formed. You had an ocean. You had an atmosphere. You didn't have oxygen in the atmosphere, but you had an ocean and you had an atmosphere and a moon. So it's something, it's habitable, but not pleasant. Yeah, like a boken. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so that was an eon. And now we're going to get into the eras. The next era was the Eoarchaean. This is the era in which we're pretty sure the tectonic plates started becoming a thing. So the first era in which it was possible for Roland Emmerich to arise. Who is that? The maker of the terrible disaster movie, um, 2012, The Day After Tomorrow. Oh, I don't actually know what happened in that movie. Tectonic plates rose up and destroyed all humanity. Okay. That's not how that works. I, yeah, I didn't think that was how that worked. Roland Emmerich is really crazy about geology and climate science. Unfortunately, he just gets all of it wrong. That's neat. So then we get to the Paleo-Archaean era, in which we're pretty sure there was life. We found fossilized bacterial mats from this era, which look like a bunch of lines and rocks, but are very significant. An asteroid hit South Africa during this time period, creating one of the biggest natural disasters ever. 
the kind of disaster that's only really eclipsed by the human disaster of European miners figuring out that asteroid left a bunch of gold in South Africa. <laughs> then came the Meso Archean, which was pretty cool. That's when the Earth experienced its first ice age. That's horrible, Liz. And then came the Neo Archean. Neo means new, or the one. Ah. And the newness here refers to the evolution of oxidative photosynthesis. The really energy-efficient form of photosynthesis that modern plants use to make energy while turning carbon dioxide into oxygen. Another fun thing about the new Archean is that famous actor Kanye Reeve was first born in this era and then died in this era, but then he came back. And he was reincarnated over and over and over. Yes. I'm a... what's a good word here? Crazy person? Uh, thank you, Liz. No, it's, it's true, though. I mean, there's certain celebrities that are just eternal throughout time. So Jeff Goldblum is one, Keanu Reeves is another, and who is the other person that I've already done this joke with? David Bowie. I think he counts two. Who was um, reincarnated into Tilda Swinton. Oh, that's right, of course. Yeah, well, he's more of a changeling shapeshifter type. Fair point. He's not one of the ancients like Keanu. Mm-hmm. So the next era <laughs> was the Paleo-Protozoic era. And remember how we mentioned that we had oxidative photosynthesis and how boring that sounds? Well, hold on to your butts here, people, because you might have heard sometime in class that humans breathe oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide, and plants breathe carbon dioxide and exhale oxygen. And this is a problem, because oxygen is actually a very reactive atom, and it can be very, very dangerous to cells that haven't evolved to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. We call these cells anaerobic bacteria. Or rather, we call these cells anaerobic bacteria. <laughs> so because the atmosphere of the Earth was accumulating oxygen very, very quickly, this accumulation of oxygen from the aerobic, or oxygen-producing bacteria, killed off the anaerobic bacteria. Those jerks. They, anaerobes still exist today. Yeah, but they're mostly in, like, hot springs and by vents in the ocean. I grew some of them for a science project in school once, and they smelled bad. That's nice. One fun thing about oxygen is that if you get, like, oxygen radicals, which is free oxygen atoms, they will screw up your DNA. They will give you cancer. So oxidative photosynthesis evolved, and then everything else got cancer and died. And so next we go to the Mesoproterozoic era. This is when multicellular organisms and sexual reproduction evolved. That's important. That's going to look, that's starting to look a lot more like what we know to be like today. It's not just microbes floating around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then, then we go to the uh, Neoproterozoic, which was super duper extra awesome cool, because that was the Snowball Earth era. Liz, this is a horrible pun. It is a horrible pun. You're causing me pain, Liz. You know what's also painful? Glaciers literally forming on the equator. That sounds nice. Also, the first animals evolved Ima in this era. Really simple ancestors of sponges and stuff. Imagine the skiing. Imagine how great the skiing would be. And the ice skating. And the ice... I hate ice skating. But you like skiing, though, so... I do like skiing. That's perfect, Liz. You like skiing, and I like ice skating, therefore we need to go to a glacier where we can do both. What glaciers? <laughs> <laughs> so now we get to the Paleozoic Era. This started about 500 million years ago. Roughly the most recent one-eighth or one-ninth of Earth's existence. And to do this era justice, we have to discuss the six periods it's broken into. So first was the Cambrian. Here's where we find the first 
animals that we can recognize as the ancestors of modern animals. Early arthropods and the ancestors of vertebrates. Do you have any examples of like famous fossils people might know? Or is there not anything that stands out? Trilobites. Trilobites. Cool. Always trilobites. Uh, the Ordovician, where true fish and jaws emerged. And those dun- are... Dun- dun- Spielberg got so much use out of the geologic time scale. Mm -hmm. Then came the Silurian, where you had the first life on land. Because before this, everything lived in the ocean. Because land sucked. There's no good. Because every animal, every living thing needs water. And so to move out of the ocean, first life forms had to evolve the ability to take water with them. And this was a big step. We all have an ocean within us. Or a little bit of an ocean. A, li- a wee ocean. A small ocean. Small ocean. So the next came the Devonian period, which is when vertebrates moved onto land and the modern ray-finned fishes emerged. Oh my god, ray-finned fishes? I Very love exciting. Guys. I, I am so not a fish enthusiast. A lot of evolutionary biologists really love fish. I could not care less about fish. You're not an ichthyophile? I am not an ichthyophile. Then came the Carboniferous period where the oxygen in the atmosphere reached its highest point that it ever would, and this led to the evolution of giant bugs. That sucks. That was awesome. I really want a dragonfly the size of a hawk that can sit on my shoulder. (laughs) And then came the Permian period, where the vertebrates split into mammals and reptiles. And everyone had perms. And so that's the Paleozoic era, where animals really started to dominate the world. Now let's go on to the next era, which is the Mesozoic. And this started about 250 million years ago. That's one eighteenth of the world's history. And the Mesozoic is known as the Age of Reptiles. The three periods of the Mesozoic should sound pretty familiar. It started with the Triassic. The Triassic is when dinosaurs and pterosaurs first appeared. So after the Triassic comes, and we, we should do a whole dinosaurs episode at some point. Oh, for sure. So after the Triassic comes the Jurassic. This is hearing an angel sing. This is what everyone thinks about when they think about the dinosaurs. The Jurassic was really the peak period of dinosaur life on Earth. But a lot of other things evolved during the Jurassic. That was where the first crocodiles, the first birds, ichthyosaurs, plesiosaurs, and the first placental mammals appeared. Nice. So the Jurassic was really where the stage was set for what we think of as kind of what the ancient world looks like. And again, it's really like only in the most recent 18th. I guess this would be the most recent, like, 5% of the Earth's history, Mm -hmm. where you had these dinosaurs. Which is crazy to think about, because we think of dinosaurs, they're so far in the past, they're outside of the scale of the human imagination. I know when I think about the past, I tend to think just, like, there's human history, and then there's just everything else. Mm -hmm. And to think that there's such a huge timescale that these gigantic reptiles roamed the Earth, it sounds almost fake. Like, it sounds just so out there that it's like, you you hear it, it's like, that's just so incredible that that's real, that we know this. And when I think about the past, I get nostalgic for movies like Jurassic Park. Okay, and then we had the final period of the Paleozoic era, which was the Cretaceous. And this was where 
flowers appeared, and also everything died. That's nice. There was a meteor. That's, that is our dinosaur extinction. And so that was the end of the Mesozoic era. And now we reach the era that we're living in, which is the Cenozoic. Do you know what that means? No. Okay. I don't know Latin. That's the Cenozoic era, which started roughly 70 million years ago. And the Cenozoic is considered the age of mammals, or the age of, haha, reptiles, we survived and you didn't. We are kings now. We are kings now. Yeah, kings among animals. And there were three periods, and one is the Paleogene, which is where mammals kind of went nuts and diversified and split into all the lovely groups of mammals we have today. Do we have mammoths then? Do we have mammoths yet, or are they mastodons? Or are they neither? Are there some ancestor of mammoths and mastodons? Where are the mastodons? I think back in the Paleogene, the Afritharians diverge, and so you have the ancestors of elephants and mastodons and mammoths, and this was the point in which they were just, like, giant tenrex. They, re- they really did look like giant tenrex with less fur. We should also do an episode on just all of the wacky mammals that have existed. We did the tenrex one. Yeah, no, 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 have existed. Not yeah, so the, so, the fossil, so, so the fossil elephants looked like... Actually, they looked even more like aardvarks. That's very, very cool. Yeah. So the first period was the Paleogene, in which we had the ancestors of all these modern animals appear. And then we had the Neogene, in which early hominids appeared. And then finally, we reach the Quaternary, which is the period we're living in now. And that's it. That's the history of the Earth in uh, roughly 15 minutes. That's everything. (laughs) Yep. We didn't miss a single thing. Missed nothing. Very, very, very complete. So do you think there's any behavioral takeaways that you can get from studying the geologic time scale? So the problem is that behavior fossilizes poorly. <laughs> there's definitely a few instances where you can see there's fossilized, like, you know, uh, birds with their eggs or animals, like, curled around each other. So there are some things you can get, but it's limited. So, mm, less so, I think. <laughs> but there's a lot of interesting takeaways for evolutionary biology. I think one of the most important takeaways for evolutionary biology is that you have to keep in mind that the processes we're studying take place over a time period that we can't observe. A time period that is too vast, really, for us to comprehend. And so I think it it teaches you as a scientist to kind of be humble and accept that there are uncertainties and there are gaps in the evolutionary record that you can't really understand or that you can't really study and that it teaches you how to work with an incomplete picture to understand the whole. I think it also teaches us just how very intricately the history of our planet is tied to the history of life on it. Mm-hmm. Life is, has been an incredibly transformative force for very fundamental things about the world, for entire mm-hmm. um, rock strata, for the atmosphere, which also influences then, then the rocks. What is living when and what is creating which chemical? Like, life is an incredible catalyst for all sorts of incredibly massive changes in climate and atmosphere and... Uh, the very Earth itself. Yeah, and the really amazing point here is that for the vast majority of the Earth's history, there has been life on Earth. It's Most of it is this single-celled stuff that we wouldn't really recognize or that we wouldn't really see as life, but it was there. There was life on this planet for the vast majority of its history. That's pretty awe-inspiring. 
the fundamental geologic force that shapes the Earth is life. And the history of our planet is inseparable from the actions that living things have taken to shape it. So if you hear anyone telling you that, oh, you know, humans can't have an effect on the Earth's climate because we're just, we're little people and the Earth is just some vast and powerful self-regulating system that is beyond our ability to control, don't believe it for a heartbeat. If single-celled organisms were capable of completely changing the atmosphere of an entire planet, then think what humans are capable of, both positively and negatively.